I am. So tonight we are in uh, continuing our study on immersion. Uh, last week we talked about immersion in principle, talking about how it was commanded. Tonight we're going to talk about immersion in practice or the um, incidents that are recorded in Scripture concerning baptism. Now there is a handout back here on the chair just inside the door. If, if you want one, you're welcome to have one. Um, so baptism, we talked about it last week. The word itself is a transliteration. It did not exist in English until the translators got a hold of the Bible and they tried to translate into uh, English and they created the word baptism, a transliteration which sounds like baptizo, the, the Greek word. And the reason they did that was so they didn't offend people who were already doing it the wrong way because the word baptizo is to plunge, dip, or immerse. So the Greek word means plunge, dip, or immerse. The English word should mean the same thing, but very few Bibles translate it that way. They just translate it as baptize and then let people decide on their own whether that's going to be sprinkle, pour, or immerse. But the word is immerse. Uh, baptism is commanded by Jesus. We talked about that last week. It is also directed by Peter and it is directed by Paul. So the psalmist says that the word of God is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119.105. And these words convey the role that the Bible plays in our lives, directing our lives. It's capable of providing direction as God reveals his plan to us. Commands are found throughout scripture. And so it's up to us then to read scripture and get to know what those commands are. The psalmist would also say the statutes of the Lord are the right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, Psalm 19.8. Because the commands of God are right and they are pure, they are items that we must identify and submit ourselves to. And this certainly is true with regards to baptism. Because baptism is commanded in Scripture, we are in no position to argue whether or not we are, be, are to be baptized. We are to be baptized because Jesus said so. God's Word commands baptism. That settles the issue. Nevertheless, Scripture not only dictates what we do, but Scripture also provides us examples of what they did in the first century. So we not only have the command to baptize, we also have examples of individuals being baptized. <clears throat> So, we get the precept regarding baptism we talked about last week, the command, and, and now we're going to talk about the, uh, the practice in action. These historical accounts are valuable because they allow us to see what God has commanded. And so we have examples from God's plan. And we can look and see how people read God's word and, or heard God's word, as it was most of the time then, and they obeyed it or they disobeyed it. We learn from those who obey and hopefully follow in that uh, same path, or we learn from those who disobeyed and avoid that path. So tonight we're going to look at some examples, <clears throat> because if they practiced baptism by immersion in the first century, we probably should too. If they felt there was a sense of urgency about baptism in the first century, we probably should too. If they understood that baptism plays an integral part in one's salvation in the first century, we probably should too. So these examples 
shouldn't be ignored as well. They show us how to put God's precepts into practice. Our task is to learn and obey. Baptism is not merely a theoretical thing that we argue about or discuss, but it is a command to be obeyed. Jesus' uh, great commission declares the universal nature of the gospel. Uh, he says in Matthew's account, we are to go into all nations and preach the gospel. In Mark's account, he says, go into all the world. So the saving gospel is not reserved for one race. It is not reserved for one nation. It is not reserved for one group of people. It is for everybody. Therefore, all men and all women should hear about God's message and obey it. Uh, Hebrews 2.9 says that Jesus died for everybody. So therefore, we need to obey the gospel. The urgency of the gospel is recorded probably best in Philip's account of the Ethiopian eunuch. And we're going to touch on that one too. In uh, Acts chapter 8, it has this account of Philip. Matter of fact, the first part of Acts chapter 8, Philip has gone to the Samaritans. And he has preached there and he has made many conversions. It's interesting now that only after these individuals heard the, heard the gospel and had been baptized that they send back to Jerusalem and bring Peter and some of the other apostles up to lay hands on them so that they have miraculous gifts. They did not send back to Jerusalem to get permission to baptize these people. They did not send back to Jerusalem to get somebody like Peter to come up and baptize these people. So you didn't have to be an apostle to baptize. The gospel message given from any man or woman to any other men or women motivates the hearts. They respond and they are baptized. Well, following his experience with the Samaritans, the, an angel of God takes Philip and says, you need to go to Gaza, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he does. And in, um, in verse 26, it says this, uh, the angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, uh, the desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. So as he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and was on his way home, sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Now, he is not a distracted driver. <laughs> he was sitting in his chariot. He was reading the, the gospel. Well, not the gospel. He was reading the book of Isaiah. But you see, he is an official. He has a driver. Because later it doesn't say he stopped the chariot. He says he ordered the chariot be stopped. Somebody else is driving the chariot. So don't worry about distracted driving. It's not an issue here. He's reading from the prophet Isaiah. So <clears throat> um, it goes on here. He's reading from this passage in Isaiah. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. He's actually reading uh, Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. And Isaiah 53 is one of, the, one of those chapters that we go to that we know is a messianic uh, scripture. Isaiah 53 is one that we often use when we're at the Lord's Supper, talking about Jesus and his death, because it describes it very clearly. So... When Philip comes up, the, the eunuch asks him, is this guy, the prophet, is he speaking of himself or somebody else? And Philip 
begins at that very scripture and tells him the good news about Jesus. So, he picks up right where this guy is and he takes him forward telling him about Jesus. And as they travel along, they come to a body of water. And the eunuch says to Philip, here's water. Why can't I be baptized? They order the chariot to be stopped. Philip and the eunuch go down into the water. And as I pointed out last week, it's very dumb if you're going to pour water on somebody's head to go down into the water. You don't have to do that. If I'm putting water on your head, I'm not getting in the water. I'm going to stop at the side, scoop out what I need, pour it on your head. Right? Or I'm going to get me a handful and give you that in the face. You don't need to get down into the water unless you're going to use the water, in a bigger sense, to put somebody under it. They both go down into the water and Philip baptized him. Then they both come up out of the water. And of course, it's that point that the angel takes Philip and he just kind of disappears. You don't hear him walking away. It says that he suddenly took Philip away. So he disappeared. But the eunuch goes on rejoicing. Now, why would he rejoice? Well, there's only one reason. His sins have been wiped away. He is a new creature now. He is a son of God. He's saved. That's reason for salvation. <clears throat> it only occurred after baptism. So what I think you can conclude from this is, one, even though the Ethiopian was a truly, deeply religious man, he needed the gospel. And he has traveled, this is a long way. If you look in the back of your Bible at the maps, you know, you, Ethiopia is on the other side of Egypt. So he had to cross Egypt, cross the Sinai Peninsula, and then about halfway up through the, the territory that is Israel in order to get to Jerusalem. Now he's headed back. And he's, he's almost got to Gaza, but he's still got the Sinai Peninsula, and he's still got Egypt to cross before he's getting back to Libya. Right? That's a long ride. How many of you think there's no water on that chariot? <laughs> I think there's water on that chariot. You don't make a trip like that without water. Yeah, yeah, drinking water. So there again, if I'm going to pour water on somebody's head, I don't need to stop at a body of water. I get one of the jugs that we've got here or, or pouches or whatever they carry the water in, and I just squirt it on you. Or I run it down your head. We don't need to stop. But the eunuch recognized there was a lot of water here. And he says, whoa, there's water. He didn't point to one of the jugs in his chariot and say, well, you got water right here. No, he says, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And they go down into the water. He baptizes him and they come up out of the water. Another thing that I think is that teaching Jesus includes baptism. You cannot teach Jesus without teaching baptism. Because what did it say? He began at that scripture, Isaiah 53, and taught him Jesus. And then the question comes from the eunuch, Hey, here's water, why can't I be baptized? So I think that's a necessary conclusion that you make here. And baptism clearly is involving immersion. Otherwise, you don't need that kind of water because a chariot loaded for a long journey, and this is a royal person on this chariot, he would have water. He's probably got snacks too. And there's urgency. Philip did not tell him, wait till baptism Sunday. Baptism Sunday, we can take care of this. No problem. 
He didn't tell him, well, you need to go to Jerusalem and see the apostles. He didn't tell him, well, I need to check in with the apostles, see if we can baptize you anyway. You're a proselyte, you know. He didn't tell him, well, you know, it's really not convenient today. I'm kind of between stops here. You know, I was just down in Samaria, and now here I am with you, and I'm off someplace else. So I don't have time to baptize you. No, see, there was some urgency here. There's water. Why can't I be baptized? Yes, sir, you can stop, stop the chariot. We'll do it right now. And that's what they did. Besides religious individuals who have never been baptized, like the Ethiopian eunuch, sometimes there are people who have been baptized, but they were baptized for the wrong reason. Uh, or the wrong way. And so what happens? Well, you baptize them again. An incident like that is recorded in Scripture in Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, Paul uh, was going uh, to uh, Ephesus. Apollos had headed off to Corinth. Paul is going to Ephesus in verse 1 here. He arrives there and he finds some disciples, but he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now why would he ask them that? Well, he's trying to determine what their level of understanding is. But you know, when we go to a new community, do we not, when we find a group of people that we think to be the church, do we not ask questions too? Don't you? Otherwise, you're really embarrassed later when you think, I don't need to be here. <laughs> we, we ask questions. We try to find out, do I fit in with this fellowship or do they fit in with me? And he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? And they said, we don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. So Paul tells them, well, he asked them, well, in what baptism did you receive? And they said, John's baptism. And you remember, John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan River, a place with much water. There again, why much water? Well, he had to dunk people. You do that with much water. You don't need much water to spray them, sprinkle them, or pour on them. You need much water. John the Baptist baptized. But he baptized a baptism of repentance. People repented of their sins and they were baptized. But he told people to believe in the one that would come after him. The one whose shoes he was not, or sandals, he was not even fit to un, un, untie. And that's what he tells them here. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told people to believe in the one that's coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And so then Paul starts preaching on Jesus. And then he orders them to be baptized. I think it's interesting, too, that he didn't say they were wrong. You know, these people were, were serious people. They were sincere people. They were trying to do what was right. Paul didn't necessarily call them out, but at the same time, he didn't tell them that everything was kosher. Right? But since the time of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, John's baptism was obsolete. It didn't mean anything anymore. It had been replaced by a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Jesus' baptism was that of forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 38. And, and hence, that's why Paul asked the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit? 
um, Jesus' instruction was that to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he did not refer to somebody coming later, but rather to himself. So, he tells them that they need to be baptized, and they are. And they are baptized in the name of Jesus. And the, the, uh, the count goes on, it turns out there are about 12 of them there. So, what can you learn from this? Well, you can learn that sincerity is well and good, but sincerity must be accompanied by truth. I'm sure they were very sincere in their repentance and in their baptism, even though it was John's baptism. But it was an obsolete kind of thing. John was dead and gone, as was his ministry. Now the ministry was that of Jesus and his apostles and the gospel. So when they realized their former baptism was no longer sufficient or not sufficient, they were baptized in the name of Jesus, according to verse 5. Now we also have an example in the New Testament of an individual who is totally outside. Now, um, Acts chapter 2, when all those people were baptized, there were about like 3,000 men. We don't know if that's everybody, but it's just roughly 3,000 men that were baptized that day. Could have been a lot more with the women. Could have been just that many or maybe more women. No, tell them how many people were baptized that day. But those individuals were Jews. The individuals that were baptized in Acts chapter 2 were Jews. They were there for Pentecost. They were there for a celebration. Jews were all there. So then Samaria, when Philip went to Samaria, and he's, he's preaching in Samaria in Acts chapter 8, he's talking to Samaritans who, as we know from previous studies, are half Jews. Okay, they're, they're, they're Jewish partway, and they are heathen partway, and the Jews, for the most part, didn't like them. As a matter of fact, to get from uh, Judea to Galilee, they would often go around Samaria, so as not to go through Samaria and actually have to deal with them. It was that kind of animosity. But Philip went there and taught them, so you've got Jews, now you've got half-Jews, then you've got um, the Ethiopian eunuch, who is a proselyte. He's a total foreigner, but he has been proselytized into Judaism. Now you've got this guy Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, here's somebody that, as far as we know, was not converted to Judaism, but he was a devout man. As a matter of fact, in uh, verses 1 and 2, it says that uh, Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion, which means he was a Roman officer over a hundred men. It's what is known as the Italian Regiment. He and his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed with, uh, to God regularly. And if you drop down to verse uh, 4, uh, Cornelius stared in for it and says, What is it, Lord? And the angel says, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. And in verse 22, talks about him being a righteous man. So if you look to see what uh, the writer Luke in this case, as recorded via the Holy Spirit. This guy is Cornelius. He is a Roman centurion, military officer, but he is a good man. He is a devout man. He is a God-fearing man. He is a prayerful man. He is a generous man, gives to the needy. He is a righteous man. But all of that's not good enough. All of that doesn't save him. And it's interesting that the angel doesn't save him. The angel doesn't even preach to him. The angel goes to him and says, send 
for Peter. Send for this guy, Simon, who is also called Peter. And he'll tell you what you need to do. And God orchestrates some events in Peter's life to help him understand better that the gospel was for everybody. Because he doesn't truly know that yet. And even, even after he gets to Cornelius' house, he's not thoroughly convinced that he's got it yet. So the Holy Spirit has to intervene again. <clears throat> but when he gets to Cornelius' house, as he's start, starting to talk, he says, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Verses 34 and 35. But even having stated this, he's not truly convinced. Because starting in verse 44, it says, While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit came on all those who heard the message. So those that heard, this is Cornelius and his house and probably his neighbors. I think he sent and had his neighbors come in too. So it is at least Cornelius and his household but I think also neighbors. All of these individuals who are listening to Peter talk, suddenly the Holy Spirit came on them and they were speaking foreign languages and praising God. And Peter did one of those aha moments and reflected on what he had just said, that I perceive God shows no partiality, but in every nation he who fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The circumcised believers that had come with Peter, these are former Jews. They came here with Peter probably to witness what was going on and probably to tell on Peter if they didn't do what he thought they should do, which is what they're going to do in chapter 11. But we're not going to get into that. You can read through that. It's an interesting reading. But these circumcised believers also witness what Peter witnessed, that these individuals had the Holy Spirit and were able to speak in foreign languages and they were praising God. And then Peter, after his aha moment says, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus and that and then they asked Peter if he would stay for them a few days, probably extend his preaching stay here in this location. So, urgency again. They know what they need to do, and now Peter knows what they need to do, even though he'd already said, it's for everybody, even though Jesus had said, go into all the world, every creature, um, every nation. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, and the scripture is very, very, uh, I think, positive about Cornelius and his family. That they were good, they were God-fearing, they were prayerful. And, and the angel even says, your prayers have gone up and remembered by God. And the gifts that he had given, the need, taking care of the needy, God had accepted that as a memorial. So all of these things, you know, they're good. They're great, but none of it saves him. He is the first recorded truly Gentile convert to Christ. Others, as I said earlier, were either Jews, they were Jewish proselytes, or they were Samaritans, the half-Jews. 
The Holy Spirit came on Cornelius and his household with a miraculous manifestation that helped Peter understand what Peter was supposed to do. His case is not unique, though, in that baptism was not optional for Cornelius either. He had to be baptized. His family had to be baptized. Even though God recognized all these wonderful things about Cornelius, Cornelius still needed to be baptized to wash away his sins. And there's urgency again. You know, Peter didn't send back to Jerusalem and say, hey, I got this uh, Gentile up here who wants to be baptized. What can I do? And he didn't say, Cornelius, why don't you come to me and you and your family? Let's just go down to Jerusalem and we'll check in there with the apostles and the elders and see what we need to do. No. There's urgency. He knows what he needs to do. We do it. Why would you live another day with your sins on you if you didn't have to? Why would you want to live in sin another day? If you're the Ethiopian eunuch, why would you want to go back to Ethiopia with your sins? He didn't. He was rejoicing when he went back because his sins were left back there in that watery grave. Same way here. The urgency of baptism is based on its attachment to salvation. One cannot possibly be saved without it. Because we're living in sin, and sin deserves the punishment of death, according to Romans 6.23 that we've talked about numerous times. Thankfully, baptism is capable of washing away our sins. And you, you get that in, in stark words when you, when you deal with Paul, or he was known as Saul. If you remember in Acts chapter 9, Saul is setting out with letters to arrest people and drag them off to jail uh, and execute them. Christians. Paul was, was tormenting the church, he was persecuting the church, and he was on his way to Damascus when a bright light struck him and he met Jesus. When the light disappeared, he was blind. He was led into Damascus and he sat for three days without eating or drinking, but praying. It says earnestly, praying earnestly and fasting for three days till this guy Ananias came to see him. And Ananias lays his hands on him and says, Saul, receive your sight. The Holy Spirit restores Saul's sight. Now, a lot of people would like to tell you that, Peter, or <laughs> that Saul was saved on the road to Damascus. If so, that's the most miserable saved person that you've ever seen in your life. Right? He was. What about the, the eunuch? Buddy, when he was saved, he went on his way rejoicing. Now, here's Saul. If Saul was saved on the road to Damascus, something's wrong. He didn't get the word. Three days, three nights, he will not eat. He will not drink. All he will do is pray. Earnestly pray, it says. Ananias preaches to him. And it says there in Acts chapter 9 that he's baptized. But you don't get the full story unless you go over to chapter 22. So, he did not, his face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus did not save him. Three days and three nights of praying did not save him. Ananias laying his hands on him so the Holy Spirit could restore his sight did not save him. Apparently, Ananias' preaching did not save him either. But when he's recounting his conversion in Acts chapter 22, Paul says this when he's talking to the Jews at Jerusalem. 
Um, in, in verse 12, a man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear the words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and what you have heard. Now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash away your sins. That's what saves him. He got up, he was baptized, his sins were washed away. There was urgency. What are you waiting for, Saul? <laughs> what are you waiting for, man? You've been praying for three days that I was going to get here, that I was going to preach to you. You didn't know it was me. You wanted God to do something for you. He sent me. I didn't want to come, but I did. What are you waiting on, Saul? Get up and be baptized. Wash away your sins. Calling on the name of Jesus. That is baptized in the name of Jesus. That's why we're calling on the name of Jesus. It's in his name. It is by his authority. You know, Revelation 1.5 says that he has freed us from our sins by his blood. Romans 6, uh, 3 through 7 talks about us being buried with him through baptism into death so that just as he was raised up for a new life, we also can have new life. How do we do that? Through baptism. We die with him in baptism and are raised a new person. Uh, Colossians 2, 9 through 12, we're buried with him in baptism so that as God raised him, he will raise us through faith. And in Galatians 3, 26 through 29, we're baptized into Christ, therefore we are clothed with Christ. Therefore, we are God's sons and daughters. We are no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We are all sons of God. And Peter also makes a statement in 1 Peter chapter 3 that makes this connection between baptism and salvation. And maybe it's clearer there, I don't know, but... He, he makes a comparison between the flood and baptism. And First um, Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Christ died for the sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. So there he's setting his premise right there. Jesus died one time for all sin for all time. Purpose, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, this is in this ark, few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism which now saves you. That's pretty clear. Baptism now saves you. The symbol was the water that washed the earth free of all of its impurities in the flood. That was the symbol. The reality, Peter says, is baptism that washes you free of sin. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it is not the water that saves you. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit acting when you go in the water. Baptism is the instrument that God uses to exert his saving power. So, what happens after baptism? 
Are we done? Is that it? Boy, we worked really hard. We got there. The sins are washed away. We're good, right? Well, yeah, no, but no. Not good enough. After baptism, we've got a life to live. And if you look back in Acts chapter 2, when uh, Peter's, uh, Peter and the apostles are preaching that day, 3,000 plus are baptized. It says in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So they devoted themselves. That means they really put their effort into it, into the teaching of the apostles, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I don't know if the breaking of bread there is the Lord's Supper or if we're talking eating there. I think a little bit later in this verse, we're talking eating. This one could be, excuse me, could be one or the other. <clears throat> Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers had, were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. There, I think, definitely eat. Ate together with gladness and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor with all people. They were at it all the time. You know, a lot of times we think, well, Sunday morning I'm good. Come in here, I, I sing a few songs, we have prayer, Lord's Supper, Blake preaches to us, and we're out the door. Good for a week. Check it off. That's not what they did. They were devoted to the teachings of the apostles. Now, for us, we don't have the teachings of the apostles except as is recorded in this book. So, are we devoted then to the teachings of the apostles? If we are, we're in this book all the time, every day. We're devoted to it. Fellowship, one with another. If I'm seeing you on Sunday and that's the only time I'm seeing you, or I'm talking to you on Sunday and that's the only time I'm talking to you, fellowship's pretty thin, isn't it? Whether we want to admit it or not, it is. But when we're talking to each other all the time, when we're seeing each other regularly, there's some fellowship going on there. We're eating together, there's fellowship going on there. We're in prayer. Paul prayed three days earnestly. Have you ever prayed for three days? I don't think I've prayed for an hour yet. One sitting. Three days, I can't imagine. They prayed all the time. They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with sincere hearts. In verse 27, or 47, rather, the tail end of it, it says, The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So, when you're baptized, your sins are washed away, you're a new creature, now you're a son of God, you are added to what? God adds you to his church. Daily, he was adding folks to his church. So, life after baptism demands continued allegiance to Christ. Jesus reminded the church at Smyrna, in uh, Revelation 2.10, that they must remain faithful even to death in order to receive a crown of life, and we certainly want that. Now, sometimes <clears throat> we get to thinking, you know, we, we don't know a whole lot. Uh, we're not as smart as we need to be. 
Uh, but the good news is there is not a knowledge test and there is not a sincerity test for baptism. When you know what you need to know to be baptized, that's enough. Because you are going to grow in Christ. 2 Peter 3, 18 says we need to grow in Christ. Uh, 1 Peter 2 and, um, or I'm sorry, 1 Peter 1, 2 Peter 1, I'll get it right here in a minute. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 9, talks about us adding to our knowledge and to our faith and to our uh, perseverance. How do we do that? Well, we grow. He goes on at the tail end there. He says, if these qualities are yours and increasing, then you are valuable to God. If not, you've forgotten where you came from. Pretty serious charge. So... Don't think because you were baptized at, say, 17 or 20, and you knew a little bit about the Bible, that now that you're 50, 60, or 70, you know so much more about the Bible, you need to go back and redo it. That's not required. Unless you think you didn't have any clue whatsoever about God, then it might be. But you knew enough. You knew that your sin hurt God. You knew that Jesus died for your sin. What else do you need to know? Probably not much. There's not a sincerity test. There's not a knowledge test. We are growing in Christ. Believers do well to remember that God saves us by His grace. It's through His grace that He forgives sin. We also need to know that God acts in baptism. God the Holy Spirit. And He grants forgiveness based on the merit of the one who died at Calvary. Not on my merit. I don't earn forgiveness. Nothing I can do that would tell God, I need for you to forgive me. I certainly want it and I certainly need it, but he is not obligated to give it. He gives it because of Jesus. Okay. Hopefully we have covered baptism in principle and now baptism in practice. If you got some questions, you're welcome to get to me um, and we'll probably take them up at another time because we are out of time for tonight. Thank you very much for your time.